0: Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast from Gutenberg College, a show where we discuss the great works, ideas, and figures that have shaped Western civilization. I'm your host, Gil Greco, and I'm here once more with Dr. Chris Swanson, tutor and president of the college. Thanks for coming back, Chris.
1: It's good to be back.
0: Thank you, Gil. Today we're discussing the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is one of the oldest pieces of literature in the Gutenberg College curriculum, the way that the curriculum uh, works here at Gutenberg, the freshmen and sophomores discuss the same works with each other. And so it can be the case that as a freshman, you'll start sort of in the middle of history and work your way to the end and then start over um, just depending when you come in on the cycle. My class happened to come in a year where we were starting with ancient civilization. So this was one of the first books that I read when I was a Gutenberg student. So I'm fairly familiar with this work, but for folks who don't know the Epic of Gilgamesh, what do you think folks need to know, Chris?
1: That's a great question. I think that Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is a book that was not known to anybody for a long time. It was. Uh, written probably in the early second millennium BC, but it wasn't discovered again until around 1840. And uh, they found some clay tablets in a library in Nineveh of all places. And since then, they found more tablets. They put together the story. It's, it is it is a full and complete document from the earliest civilization. So civilization was just burgeoning at this time. Cities were being built, they had need for writing in order to maintain uh, law and order and commerce and things of that sort. And somebody wrote down this story about Gilgamesh, probably Gilgamesh was a real person. They have found king's lists. This was very common in the ancient Near East to have lists of various kings. And Gilgamesh shows up in one of these king's lists. He's presumably the fifth king after the flood. There's a king's list of places after the flood. He's probably from Uruk, which is one of the main uh, cities of Mesopotamia, of Sumerian culture from that time. So, they had, yeah, they had populations in these cities of, of 10,000 and up people. So... That's where it came from. It's
0: interesting that these Babylonians have an idea that they had kings after the flood. Obviously, uh, the 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 biblical account has a story of a flood with Noah, but you know there might be some skepticism. Uh, from Christians who sort of believe that the Bible is true and think that the sort of flood narrative in the Bible is the correct one. Why should, why should Christians of that persuasion take the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, seriously?
1: I think the Epic of Gilgamesh is way more than just the flood narrative. That's a part of it. Sure. But the, the work as a whole is an outstanding piece of literature, one of the best pieces of literature that we have, especially from that age. It gives an incredible story, an adventure. It tells you a lot about the culture of the ancient Near East. It tells you about their religion. It tells you about what they valued. It provides an interesting comparison and contrast to the Bible as well. And it's just a very, very human story. It's about a man who is searching, striving after something. and and running into difficulties in his striving and, and searching. And it's a tale we can all understand. Okay. So, it's about all of these things, but what
0: is sort of the basic structure or outline of the story for folks who may not be familiar with it?
1: Okay. Uh, Gilgamesh is king. He's part god and part human, actually. And uh, he's in charge of the city of Uruk. And he's behaving badly and the gods recognize this and they need somebody he's so strong nobody can overcome him nobody can counter him so because of his godlike abilities and so he's basically overrunning everybody in his city and so the gods create sort of this person who is on par who comes from the wild world of the forest and he comes and he challenges Gilgamesh and the two fight and Gilgamesh wins, but in the process, they become these fast friends. And then, you know, throughout his life, Gilgamesh is continually looking for the next great thing to do to, to accomplish fame and glory and things of that sort. So they go off to the forest where Enkidu, Enkidu is the, is the character who is the the friend of Gilgamesh that I just mentioned a little mm-hmm. while ago, the wild man from the forest? Mm-hmm. They go back to the forest, they conquer the forest in a certain way, mm-hmm. and they come back. They defeat a an ogre named Humbaba. Yes, Humbaba. <laughs> um, yeah. So
0: they come back and kind of what what happens to
1: them? Well. Gilgamesh, because he's, you know, done these great things, he gets the attention of the goddess of love Ishtar. And so she's like, come marry me and Gilgamesh is, um, you know, all your husbands in the past have met horrible ends. So I think, uh, you know, respectfully, no, she gets really, really angry and she sends this bull of heaven, which of course Gilgamesh kills with Enkidu and. Then all the gods are really upset at Gilgamesh. And they said, one of you guys has got to die. And of course, Enkidu is the guy who dies and he gets this disease and he withers away in front of Gilgamesh's eyes. And Gilgamesh is just completely, you know, beside himself with grief. There's, I mean, the grief is really palpable. Here's like a a really short little bit of the poem that comes from there. Hear me great ones of Uruk. I weep for Enkidu, my friend, bitterly moaning like a woman mourning. I weep for my brother. Oh, Enkidu, my brother, you were the ax at my side, my hand strength, the sword in my belt, the shield before me. So yeah, he's just, he's beside himself with grief. It's terrible. So
0: Gilgamesh is sort of confronted by the mortality of his friend and how, you know, his friend doesn't die sort of heroically in battle fighting a big ogre or fighting the monsters that Ishtar sends to sort of fight them. He, d- he just wastes away from a disease. Um, how does this affect Gilgamesh and what's his response to to seeing this in his friend?
1: Well, he, he comes face to face with mortality and decides that this is not something that he can accept. He needs again to go and find something that is going to provide him essentially eternal life. And uh, he's heard a story of somebody that has been has gained eternal life. So he goes on this grand adventure seeking after it. And he finally finds this, this person who has been granted by the gods eternal life. And he tries to ask, uh, can I get it? And th- the fellow that that is is talking to him this is where the flood story comes in says this is how i got eternal life there was this big flood and sort of kind of like the noah story in the end he says okay gilgamesh you can have eternal life if all you have to do is stay awake for six days and seven nights and gilgamesh is like okay i can do it and he fails of course and so he's sent home without attaining eternal life, which is what he really wanted in life. So eventually, you know, he 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 is great, he's powerful, he's beautiful, he's strong, he's accomplished everything he can accomplish, but he is not able to overcome death uh, of his friend. He's not over, able to overcome his own death and eventually he dies. So it's interesting to note how the book sort of
0: ends on this positive note, right? Cuz even though he's not able to attain eternal life, it sort of ends with this eulogy that people, you know, it's sort of in Gilgamesh's own voice basically saying like I built this huge city and I made all of these laws and I beat these monsters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. and that's sort of just the abrupt end of the book is the sort of list of his accomplishments. What do you think this sort of says about the Mesopotamian sort of view of how humans are supposed to deal with their mortality?
1: Well, I don't know for sure exactly how to answer that particular question, but it does suggest what it was that they valued. Uh They valued things like conquering. They valued strength. They valued beauty. They valued a legacy. That sort of thing. So this this story, which is a eulogy to Gilgamesh, is in some sense a taking over or replacement. It is a replacement of eternal life for him by eternalizing him or memorializing him in the story, that sort of thing. And all of the whole story is all about him, you know, accomplishing all these great deeds. And, you know, the things that he is fighting against generally are either the the natural world, but more often than not, it's it's the gods and the and the decisions of the gods and the various, you know, obstacles that the gods have put in in his place. I mean, obvious example is this uh, Ishtar, the goddess of love wants to marry him and she's the one that creates all this trouble for him and the death of Enkidu and that sort of thing. So it is a struggle in some sense for accomplishing these goals and, and Gilgamesh basically did better than everybody else. I mean, he didn't get eternal life, but he certainly accomplished something that no one else was able to accomplish. And so he is presumably lauded and praised for for his accomplishments.
0: So we mentioned that this Utnapishtim character is sort of the Noah of this, this flood story. In some ways, it's similar to the account in the Bible.
1: What do you make of that? How should we think about that? Yeah, there's some striking similarities. I, reading through it recently, because I just led this discussion at Gutenberg, reading through it, I noticed a number of places that was really similar to the biblical account. There's a flood that's supposed to wipe out all of mankind in both accounts. There is a vessel that is built, an ark in some sense. It's not called an ark in Gilgamesh, but it's clearly such a such a vessel. One person is building it, uh, Utnapushtim. The directions on how to build it are very specific in terms of cubits and everything of that sort and the dimensions and things. There is a flood that lasts a long time in Gilgamesh, it's a little shorter, it's six days instead of 40, but it is a long, long flood. And at the end of the story, just like in the biblical story, there are birds that are released and some come back and then eventually one doesn't come back, which. Tells Utnapushtim that it's time to get off the boat and we can, we can then disembark and go about our ways. They both bring in animals and those sorts of things. It's, it's very, very similar in a lot of ways, at least in terms of the structure of the story, the basic ideas of what happens. What's different is probably almost more striking than what's similar because it's almost an identical story in terms of plot and structure, but the, the content of the story, the meaning of the story is entirely different. For instance, why is it that the, the humans are being destroyed? Well, from the biblical account, God is upset at the unrighteousness of man. And in the Gilgamesh account, the gods are upset by the clamor the noise that humans make and it, they cannot get rest, and they are upset with the humans because they cannot get rest. It's really clear that in the Gilgamesh picture, in the ancient Mesopotamian picture, humans' role is to serve the gods by providing sacrifices which give them fragrances that they can smell and please them. So it's to please the gods. And if you are not providing sacrifices to please them and if you are making loud noises you're you're disturbing their peace mm-hmm, basically mm-hmm. so the you know don't disturb the god's peace the world will be destroyed the other piece is that the gods are not outside the outside of the flood they're part of it they're scared they're they're overwhelmed by this huge flood that they have created themselves and when it's over they're very happy and then somebody offers a sacrifice and there's this great line that says when when the gods smelled the sweet savor, they gathered like flies over the sacrifice. I mean, it's like they really want humans to provide these sacrifices. They are dependent in some ways. So they are not outside of the world. Whereas in in the biblical picture, it's clear that God is not subject to the storm and the flood, it's very much he is in control of everything, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, that that description of the gods sort of being like flies is sort of like there's this antagonistic relationship between humans and the gods, right? The gods happen to be so much stronger than us and immortal, but they are pests kind of from our perspective. And so you sort of have these these, these different the factions who, you know, metaphysically, they're different in terms of how long they live, but there's there's still a, a sort of palpable animosity yeah. <laughs> between them.
1: Yeah, actually, you're right. I mean, the, the nature of life is a struggle against the whim of the gods. Exactly. And in the biblical account, the nature of life is to essentially to follow the commands of God in some sense and to overcome one sinful nature or something like that, or to to fight against it in some sense. Really different kind of uh approach. So the all of that's very interesting, this sort of
0: uh these different perspectives, the you know, the the content of the story being different even though the sort of plot is very similar. Given all of that, what do you think that sort of Christians who are familiar with the Bible should make of, of, of that difference? I mean, as far as we can tell, the story of Gilgamesh is written before the Bible is written. So how how are we supposed to think of that in terms of which story has precedence?
1: This is a, this is a very, very complex question. <laughs> and there have been a lot of people that have written, you know, a number of different works and papers and books and and offered various opinions here. And I am certainly no expert. But one thing we can say is that the culture of that time was not – these were not isolated cultures. It wasn't that the Hebrews were in one place and Mesopotamians were in another place and the Sumerians and so on and so forth. I mean, they have had a lot of trading that's going on. One of the things that shows up in the book is lapis lazuli that shows up in the the epic of Gilgamesh numerous times as a precious stone. The only place that they were getting lapis lazuli was in Afghanistan. So, that's a long ways away and they're trading in distant lands for all sorts of things for a long time. So, my expectation is that the culture was sharing in some sense a tradition and this was probably a tradition that existed throughout the entire ancient Near East. Probably all of the people in that area were familiar with that story to some, to some extent or another. So the fact that the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians had it and that the Hebrews had it doesn't necessarily mean that the Hebrews somehow stole it from the Sumerians or something like that or that it was created from scratch or something like that. I think we know how stories work. The question is, you know how are we to think of the biblical account of that story and, and was God involved in in recounting that to some extent or uh, something like that. So I don't think that it, it should necessarily be a problem that other cultures also had flood stories.
0: Just to be clear then, the, the idea that you're sort of proposing here is that this was a story that was shared by a bunch of different cultures. And what the Hebrews are doing when they, you know, when they are creating the text of the Bible is sort of relating sort of a different truth about God than the other surrounding cultures, right? The other surrounding cultures, there's this antagonistic sort of, you know, these, these superhuman flies that are constantly bugging us and, and, you know, killing us with floods and natural disasters. There's sort of this animosity there. Whereas the biblical picture is that there is this sort of benevolent God who, uh, eradicates evil through this flood and the story is sort of 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 a you know a righteous person being sort of saved being saved out of that calamity rather than some lucky guy who got to not be you know swarmed by the flies or whatever
1: yeah no that's exactly it and the fact that everybody was sharing a similar kind of a story does not necessitate that it was a made-up story either. It could have been that they were all responding to an actual event that they were all that they all knew about, that kind of a thing. And, you know, if, if you believe the Bible is true or if, if God is, you know, reliable or the, the text is reliable, then presumably the story that is in the Bible is, is the correct representation of what actually happened there.
0: So that's very interesting in terms of sort of comparison to um, the biblical text but we may have other listeners who are, you know, not necessarily uh, approaching it, you know, comparative sort of studies and are just sort of interested in the question like okay, so why is this book relevant to us today? You know, yes, okay, so there's interesting similarities and differences between the biblical story and this story, but what is what does any of this stuff have to do with sort of our modern world? mm
1: mm-hmm. Mhm. I've been particularly struck in the last few days about how pertinent the story of Gilgamesh is and how relatable it is. it is. It is the human condition. It is the human story that we strive and attempt to accomplish things that we think are valuable and good. And the contexts are a little different, but they're not really all that different. I mean, if you imagine the ancient times, the gods were sort of chaotic and whimsical and untrustworthy and unknowable. You didn't know what was going to happen. You spent all of your time and effort striving, accomplishing glory, that sort of thing. And you just spend all this time working towards that. And nowadays, if you think about what are we like, what, is, what are things like here? I mean, we have economics and politics and we have natural disasters or we have family disasters or illness and sickness like, Enkidu dies of some disease, we often experience these same problems that seem so chaotic, so completely out of our control. Why is one person wealthy and one person poor? Partly because they were born to a wealthy family or a poor family. I mean, these are things that are completely out of our control. And our experience of life is very much like Gilgamesh's is striving against all the forces of the world in an attempt to accomplish what one can accomplish and in the midst of it we meet suffering just like gilgamesh met suffering in the death of his friend that caused him such great lament we we meet barriers to accomplishing the things that we want to accomplish we meet you know the goddess of love ishtar who is who creates this problem for us maybe we get in a relationship that doesn't go the way that we want and it causes all this pain and suffering i mean maybe the bull of heaven doesn't come down and attack us but but something else maybe happens and you lose your friends or a job or something bad happens or something like that so it's a really relatable story it seems to me even though the context feels different i also i also feel like this story in particular in comparison with the biblical account sort of presents the two fundamental pictures of the world here. And it's really intriguing to me that both of these are occurring at the origin of writing the origin of civilization. We have two competing worldviews that are, that are springing up in the city, which is the source of power the source of control and security and all these sorts of things like that. What are the values? It's glory and longevity and beauty and power and victory and things of that. And that's what Gilgamesh is praised for. In the biblical account, if you look at, for instance, at the story of Abraham, Abraham basically sure, he's he's a wealthy guy, but it's not because of him being strong and him being amazing and him doing all these things. In fact, the story of Abraham is God telling him to do stuff and him sort of not trusting God and then God getting him out of the out of the problems that he has created for himself. And then that happening over and over again and eventually Abraham trusting God. So, the story there is not so much Abraham taking life by the horns and conquering the world and becoming powerful, it's Abraham finally bowing the knee before God and saying, yes, what you want me to do is what I want to do. And those two different pictures of life are just in incredible stark contrast. 5,000 years ago, they were there then and they are exactly the same two stories that exist in the world today. And it's just striking to me how similar those two worldviews, uh, how, how well portrayed those worldviews were in the ancient texts and how comparable they are to our modern life and existence and that sort of thing.
0: As we continue to do these podcasts that are sort of looking at the ancient world, that theme of sort of becoming superhuman and sort of gaining sort of you know, extra human glory or wealth or legacy or whatever is so very often contrasted with this idea of sort of being merely human, mm-hmm. right? The Greeks are going to have this perspective that's not necessarily the same as the biblical picture because they still think the gods are fickle and they can't really save you, but they're sort of like, Don't get too big for your britches and you'll do okay. Nothing grand is going to happen, but at least the gods aren't going to smite you. And those two sort of pictures are always sort of posed against each other. Mm -hmm. It's like you can be striving, right? You can, you can be Icarus and you can fly too close to the sun or you can just not be remarkable. And those are kind of the two sort of stories that are, that are, um, There's always that tension uh, throughout the ancient world. I think that's a constant thing. So hopefully as we keep going, like uh, hopefully it's apparent here in this story and hopefully that'll become apparent as we keep working through other stories that have to do with the the ancient world and how they were thinking about stuff.
1: Yeah. I, I think one question that has come to me that I think really captures the heart of the whole difference is to ask who is the hero of the story. In Gilgamesh, the story has a clear hero, it's Gilgamesh, right? He is the strong one. He is the one that accomplishes the, what he wants to accomplish. In the Bible, I would argue, probably there are people that will disagree with me, but if you look at, for instance, the story of Abraham, where I'm trying to compare Abraham and Gilgamesh to some extent, I feel like the hero of the story of Abraham is God. It's like, it's not Abraham. It's not because of Abraham that all these good things are happening. It's because of God. If you read, for instance, you know, in the story in Genesis 12, it says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. It's God is going to do all the work, not Gilgamesh. And And but Abraham, like his challenge is to become
0: like what a human being actually is. Right. Right. So that's that's sort of the contrast. You're going to find that in you know, the difference between like Achilles and Odysseus is that Achilles wants to be the sort of Superman, you know, win all the things and conquer just like Gilgamesh. And Odysseus is sort of like, you know, I just want to go home. <laughs> I just want to be on my my farm with my wife. And I just kind of now there's a little bit more to Odysseus because he also likes to be he also wants to be famous and stuff like that. But that tension of sort of becoming what a human being should be And sort of being try, try to be more than human. is like a very common contrast in the ancient world and sort of encapsulates this thing that we've been talking about through the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks for taking us through the
1: Epic of Gilgamesh, Chris. It was my pleasure. It's fun. I, I find this story incredibly fascinating and it's, it's an interesting one to read just on its own. It's a good story. When I read this story at Gutenberg, uh, It was
0: not intimidating you know to read it at all it's a very sort of straightforward like oh and now they're gonna go on the adventure and they're gonna have a fight with this monster and uh you know it's not hard language you don't have to be an expert in sort of ancient sort of uh ways of writing or whatever to sort of get what's going on it's accessible yeah it's very accessible all right well thanks for taking us through the epic of gilgamesh chris it was a pleasure Well, that's it for the Gutenberg podcast, a production of Gutenberg College. If you have thoughts on this conversation, please feel free to email us at podcast at gutenberg edu. This is your host, Gil Greco. Please join us again next time.